Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guests on today's show are Alex Shahidi and Damien Berserier, the co-CIOs of Evoke Wealth and Eris Consulting, a $19 billion registered investment advisor they co-founded in 2014. Alex came at the business from a long tenure advising portfolios at Merrill Lynch, and Damien joined after nine years at Bridgewater. Our conversation covers their respective backgrounds, shared investment philosophy, and strategy of searching for uncorrelated returns across public markets, alpha strategies, and private markets. We discuss a risk parity approach to public markets, incorporating human behavior when calibrating risk, the sweet spot in hedge funds, uncorrelated private equity return streams, and their investment process. Please enjoy my conversation with Alex Shahidi and Damien Basarier. Alex, Damien, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Alex, why don't we start with your background and how you came to forming the business? Well, it goes back to the late 90s at the peak of the internet bubble. I came out of law school and went straight into the investment business, no intention to practice law. And I didn't realize we were at the top of the market. It's always tough starting your career with the market falling 50% in the first three years, but that teaches you certain aspects of the importance of protecting capital. So that was an early lesson. And so that's how it began. I started at Merrill Lynch as a financial advisor. And as you know, when you, when you arrive at a firm like that, they give you a phone and a computer and they say, go get clients. So I spent a couple of years trying to understand how to invest, 
how to manage client portfolios properly. And one early lesson was I discovered the importance of surrounding myself with the smartest people and learning from them, learning their strengths and their weaknesses. And so I spent a lot of time trying to find the smartest investors out there. And then I did that for 15 years at Merrill. And in 2014, it was time to leave and start our own firm. And Damien and I did that together. So what was the initial impetus for starting your own firm? When I was at Merrill, I really didn't use much of what they offered. And the reason is because I viewed myself as an independent advisor. Clients hired me to give them the advice that I thought was best fit. And I divorced myself from where I was working in that perspective. And so I would look around the world in terms of the best research. And I found really good research outside of the firm. So I didn't really use their research. I found better custodians. So I didn't use them for custody. We used them for performance reporting and compliance. And that, that was about it. And so I was effectively an RIA within a brokerage firm for a long time. And clients were asking me for many years, why are you even there? You're not really using it for anything. And so I always think of what's best for the clients. And Merrill gave me a lot of flexibility. I was able to do what I thought made sense for clients. And I did that as long as I could until I got to the point where I felt that clients needed more tools and I was able to provide while at a brokerage firm. There are some limits. And so it was at that point where I felt that it made the most sense for clients to leave and effectively broaden our toolkits to give them good performance looking forward. So before we dive into the business, what were those specific tools at that point in time that led you to say, you know what, like we just need to do this on our own? For many years, you could just own stocks and bonds and be fine. So if you think about the 80s and 90s, the great bull market and stock market and the bond market, where you could just be 60-40 and just hold on forever and buy on the dips and do perfectly well. The 2000s, we saw much greater challenges, where the stock market was negative for a decade and had two 50% declines. And so that was the beginning of the perspective for us that this might be a very challenging environment looking forward and more tools are needed. So those tools include things like hedge funds that are maybe smaller in size or market neutral or maybe not typically available at the big brokerage firms. We felt that we needed to be more innovative and maybe create investment structures that, that didn't exist. So we launched an ETF. We could have never done that. And we did that because we felt that clients needed a specific solution. So it's basically the ability to be more innovative and creative. How did you figure out how you wanted to invest client capital? A big part of the way both Damien and I think is independently. We don't necessarily just follow the herd. And I think that's a big differentiator. And so if you just take a step back and forget everything you learn about investing, and you think about ultimately you're trying to achieve an attractive return over the long run with as little risk as possible. And mathematically, the way to do that is to own a bunch of return streams that are different from one another, meaning they go up and down at different times. And the more reliable that differentiation, the better. And if you approach it from that perspective, that surprisingly leads you down a very different path from the way most people invest. And so we spend a lot of time looking for differentiated returns. To me, that's very obvious, but the challenge comes in that most people don't invest that way. So the portfolios end up looking quite different. So it's really just a, an understanding of the math behind building a portfolio and then approaching it from that angle. So before we get too deep into that, Damien, why don't you take me to your background and how it came about that you joined up with Alex to start the business? So I spent my formative investment years at Bridgewater. I was there for about nine years and started in the research group and then ended up covering clients, worked with a lot of the largest institutional investors across North America. At Bridgewater, we had a different approach to working with clients. We had much more of a consultative approach. We put investment professionals in the seats of covering clients, and we wanted to be a resource to clients beyond just a return stream. So the aspects of my job that I love the most and that I've now focused on 100% were really providing strategic, good objective advice to endowment, pension plan CIOs around those biggest asset allocation challenges. I've always been fascinated with the challenge of building a great portfolio. Alex alluded to the solution. In practice, implementing that solution is actually quite challenging, but in our mind, it's a fantastically interesting problem to attempt to solve. And that was a lot of what I did in my role, was working on questions like, 
how to think about asset allocation or hedging your liabilities or building a hedge fund portfolio or thinking about real assets and the importance of inflation protection. And so with Alex, we got to know each other in the mid 2000s. I covered him. He was actually one of our largest clients at Bridgewater by virtue of some of these large multi-billion dollar institutional investors that he covered. And he stood out to me early on. In fact, at Bridgewater, I would say he was one of our most sophisticated investors, including all the sovereign wealth funds and pension plans that we worked with. And what really stood out about Alex was he approached this business of providing investment advice in what I thought was the correct way, which was to actually roll up your sleeves, think about these things independently, do your own research. And then after basically analyzing this thing in a very deep way and believing in it, then recommending it to clients. So a great example is with the all-weather philosophy at Bridgewater, which was really Bridgewater's thinking about asset allocation, long-term asset allocation. Alex thought it was interesting. And his response was, hmm, let me take some time to figure this out. He ended up writing a book on it. It was the only book at the time on this approach called Balanced Asset Allocation. It was published by Wiley. It was interesting. He actually left an impression on Ray as well. Early on, he was meeting with Ray in our office in Westport. And afterwards, Ray grabbed me in the hallway and said, that guy I was talking to, he's got good common sense, we should hire him, which is about the most positive thing I've ever heard from Ray after an initial meeting with anyone. And so I called up Alex and I gave him the feedback and I said, this is what Ray had to say, would you consider coming out here to work for us? And Alex said, well, you know, I'm not going to move my family cross country could, because he was living in Los Angeles. He said, can I open an office in Los Angeles? And I said, well, I grew up in Los Angeles. I've been trying to make that case for years. I don't think it's going to happen. He said, well, unfortunately, I won't be able to join you guys, but while we're on the topic, would you consider working with me? And that was maybe 2009. And so over time, we kind of explored this idea of building a business around providing good, objective investment advice that was based on our own independent research and also leveraging the thinking of the smartest investors out there, the Bridgewaters of the world, et cetera. And so ultimately, when my personal life brought me back to California, I ended up coming back to LA to get married be closer to my family and raise my own family, Alex and I started the business together in 2014. So when you came together to form the business, how did you bring these ideas together into what became your investment philosophy? We've always had that philosophy of seeking to find individually attractive returns that were reliably different from one another. It sounds like a very simple endeavor, but in practice, it's quite hard. If you think about most investment portfolios, they have lots of line items, but those line items are actually very closely related, particularly in really bad environments like 2008 or Q1 of 2020. And so in practice, investors don't have that much diversification. They're all derivatives of the equity and credit markets, which are really dependent on a strong or improving growth environment. And they're susceptible to the opposite. So I think we've always had a connection in terms of our view on that and the importance of finding things that were driven by other factors, whether it's active management or whether it's other economic environments that might be beneficial for a particular asset or strategy. Finding ways to build in reliable diversification within client portfolios has always been something we're passionate about. And I think it's evolved a little bit. So initially, I think we thought about the world in alpha beta terms. So Beta meaning holding assets, earning a premium for holding different types of assets, long only, passive, that could be stocks, bonds, commodities, etc. And then alpha meaning active management. We've evolved that, I think, over time to include private markets as well, which private markets do include both of those components. They are investments in various types of assets. They often include active management. There's a big operational component to those things. But we do think that they offer a whole menu of interesting return streams that can complement what we do in the public markets. And so we now break down our portfolios into three categories. So if you think about that challenge of finding good equity-like returns that are different from one another, there's basically three categories you can choose from. There are the public markets, stocks, bonds, commodities, other types of publicly available assets. There's alpha which we really refer to as hedge funds that actually hedge. Most hedge funds don't. Most hedge funds give you more like the first category and they charge high fees and they lock you up. We actually think if you're going to give on terms, you have to get something that's unique, that's skill-based. So we sort of fish in that pond looking for managers that are primarily delivering skill. And then the third category would be private assets. And 
within private assets, you have things that are probably more familiar to people like private real estate, private equity, private credit. But there are also a lot of idiosyncratic things, really uncorrelated stuff like life settlements, which are buying life insurance policies from 85-year-olds or healthcare royalties, which are revenues associated with drug sales or reinsurance, which is just premiums for covering catastrophes. And so there's all sorts of things that you can access there that can be reliably uncorrelated to what you do in the other categories. And I think that philosophy has always been one that we've had. It's just evolved over time as we've been able to increase our ability to underwrite these things and understand these things and incorporate them into client portfolios. And Ted, one thing that I would add really quick is the big driver, you know, the thing that really pushes us the most is just this observation that most of the industry is populated by salespeople. It's a business where those who can bring in the clients are the kings of the world. And you can do that by being a really good salesperson. And neither one of us has a sales orientation whatsoever. We don't really have a background in that. And so the way we differentiate ourselves is by providing what we think is really good investment solutions. And the hard part is communicating it in a way that's understandable and digestible by most people. So the thing that the common link between us in terms of how we came together is that appreciation of it's an industry dominated by salespeople, less so investment people. I've seen a lot of really smart investors come in and fail miserably because they can't get clients. So that is our common understanding. And we spend a lot of time educating and trying to explain things. You take these complicated concepts, explain them in simple to understand terms, which helps clients make better decisions. So that's a big part of who we are, I think. So before we dive into each of those three buckets, Alex, on the other side of these assets, you've been working with mostly private clients, but then also institutions over the years. And I'm curious with these different types of pools of capital, how you think about applying, call it the asset side of the balance sheet in different ways. We think of it distinctly, meaning there's the public markets and there's a very efficient way to access that. There are the private markets and there's an efficient way to access that. And then there's the hedge funds, an efficient way to access that. And in some cases, access is the hardest part, is actually getting into those investments. So for each of those, we've created solutions so that all clients can access these managers and strategies. So on the public side, we launched an ETF that is basically a risk parity strategy. RPAR is the symbol, R-P-A-R. And it's a very tax-efficient, capital-efficient way to get exposure to public markets that give you, we expect, something like equities plus a little bit over the long run with a lot less risk. And that, we think, is fairly unique. It's actually the only one in the U.S. On the hedge fund side, we created a commingled vehicle where we get access to the largest managers who typically are either closed or have high minimums so that all our clients can access those managers. And then on the private side, which is where we spend most of our time trying to uncover these because they're they kind of come and go at different times. We pool our client capital to get access, get better terms, and sometimes we create feeder vehicles to make it logistically easier for our clients to invest. So we spend a lot of time structuring these. So Damien, let's start on the public side. Our par sounds a lot like something you might have learned from your Bridgewater days. Why don't you take me through how you approach public markets the way you do? Sure. Underlying risk parity, there are two aspects. One is what to hold. I think that's an important piece and actually a big differentiator in terms of how we do it versus how a lot of others do it. Risk parity in our mind is not just holding a bunch of line items at similar risk because a simple example is credit is if you hold credit in a leveraged fashion, you could make it have a similar risk level to equities, but it actually performs very similar to equities. There's not a lot of diversification there because the environments in which credit does well and I'm talking about corporate bonds, high yield bonds, tends to be very similar to the environments in which equities do well and poorly. So we try to identify assets that are reliably different, going back to our original point, our overarching objective, find things that do well in different environments. And probably very much informed by my experience at Bridgewater and the book that Alex wrote, we identify the main economic drivers as growth and inflation. So we try to find assets that have differing sensitivities to different growth and inflation outcomes. And so specifically, we've identified four major asset classes, equities, treasuries. So these would be nominal treasury bonds, inflation protected securities, which are also issued by the treasury, but have an inflation indexing component. So they pay you CPI over time. 
And then the fourth category are commodities. So after we've identified what assets we want to hold, we then have to make sure that they have a similar return and risk to one another. That's another critical aspect to unlocking the diversification benefits. If you think about 60-40, yes, you have 40% of your portfolio in bonds, but those are low risk bonds. They don't move much. So really that 60% in equities dominates your outcomes. We want to have a portfolio that has a more similar impact from those four components. So we adjust those four components so that they have similar returns and risks. For equities and commodities, it actually doesn't require any adjustment. They already have high returns and high risks. But for the bond categories, we make a couple of adjustments. We increase their size as a percentage of the portfolio. We do that through utilizing leverage. So in the context of treasuries, you can do that very efficiently by using futures. You can actually borrow implicitly at repo, more or less at zero, by using futures to get that incremental treasury exposure. And we also hold longer duration securities. So by utilizing both of those tools, we can actually adjust those bonds to have a much more similar risk and return impact as the other two categories. So after you've gone through that process of adjusting them, holding them in roughly equal size, and identifying what we believe are the asset classes that have reliably different behavior in different environments, you get something that's much more diversified than a more traditional equity concentrated approach. How do you address the very common critique of risk parity that it's really just a levered bond portfolio that's worked really well in this prolonged period of time when rates have gone from teens to zero over the last few decades? That's interesting. Interest rates have been falling for 40 years. And I'd say about 10 or 15 years ago is when talk started that rates are the lowest they're going to be and they're going to go up from here. And they're lower now than they were in 08. And if you look around the world, U.S. rates are among the highest of the developed world still. And so you can make a very clear argument that they'll go lower. Now, the point isn't that you're betting on them going lower. The argument is you want to be balanced. And balance, that perspective, if you're approaching a portfolio from the goal of being well-diversified and balanced, as opposed to trying to predict what the future holds and then owning the assets that you think will do well in that environment, it leads you down a very different path. And so the way we think about it is you should be balanced all the time, and particularly today, when the potential range of outcomes in the next five to 10 years is extremely wide. I mean, who knows what the world looks like five or 10 years from now? And so the way we think about those long treasury positions or even the long tips is if you get an environment where rates drop, you're really glad you own them because they'll protect you. This is what happened in Q1 of this year. People thought rates were low in January and they went a lot lower. If rates rise, it's probably because either growth is doing well, in which case those bonds may not do well, but your other assets will do well if you're properly diversified, or it's because inflation has gone up a lot, in which case if you have inflation hedges, so that's what happened in the 1970s. Inflation went up, stocks and treasuries did poorly, but commodities and gold and tips didn't exist at the time, but they probably would have done well. So it's achieving the balance that is the critical goal here, as opposed to trying to time which way markets are going to go. You know, the other question that calls to mind in this is you have a couple of different assets where the underlying economics don't look like there are significantly high future returns. So where treasuries are, where break-even inflations are, where equities are priced, commodities harder to know. How do you think about the importance of active management versus just owning these instruments in an environment where the betas don't look like they're priced to deliver much? Well, the big problem is interest rates are at zero. So if you think about all these assets, they offer a risk premium above cash. So as an investor, you have a choice. You can hold cash, take no risk, and earn the interest rate. Or you can part with your cash, invest in assets, and earn a premium. And over time, assets give you 4 or 5% above cash or something in that ballpark over the long run. That may not be that different going forward. It's just that cash is lower. And so that's one of the challenges with just being a passive investor is you may get low returns for some time. So that moves you into the world of alpha and trying to achieve excess returns on top of cash. And then also private assets where there's other premium. I'm going to let Damien talk about alpha and how that can be complementary to a beta portfolio. Yeah, I would just to directly answer your question though, in, in reference to bonds, I would point out that there are historical examples in Japan, for example, where yields have been low for a long time and returns have actually been quite attractive. 
because you've had persistently steep yield curves. And as you've rolled down the yield curve, you get the yield plus a little bit. And if you had a little bit of leverage, you actually get a return that's not that unattractive. So it's not quite as bad as what you might think if you look at the headline yield of 1.7% on the 30-year or 90 basis points on the 10-year. We tend to hold most of our exposure at the 30-year point, and we think you're likely to do a little bit better than that 1.7%, then you add a little bit of leverage. And so the return isn't as quite as dire as it sounds, especially if we go into an environment where we start to look more like Japan and Europe. There you can get returns well in excess of the 1.7. And in that environment, you'd really value that diversification because most likely it's a challenging equity environment. So I think that's one aspect. And then another aspect of the portfolio construction, which is something that I don't think I really ever appreciated at Bridgewater. And this is something that in designing the strategy that we implement within the ETF, I think we've come to appreciate more fully, which is this idea that when you build a great portfolio, so one in which the components are reliably different, so lowly correlated, and of similar magnitude in terms of their impact, so similarly risky, you actually get this incremental portfolio benefit that I think is underappreciated. And certainly, I underappreciated it before I went through the exercise, which is that when you look at the return of this index, and so we've looked at this index, we actually created an index that the ETF tracks that goes back to 98, but then we can run that back further with proxies, what we found is that the average portfolio return is about a percent higher than the average returns of the components. And that comes from a rebalancing benefit that you're consistently buying assets that have fallen in the process of rebalancing and selling assets that have risen. And that adds incremental return at the portfolio level that is in excess of the underlying components. And that's really valuable. So if you're trying to generate a return that's competitive with equities, for instance, which is our goal here, you don't actually have to have all the components generate equity-like returns. It's okay if they generate a little bit lower than equities because you're going to get this incremental rebalancing benefit that we actually are more confident in that than we are in the other components because that's based on those diversification properties, which we've been able to test. Alex did this over 100 years of data we've looked at across all different environments, wars, and inflationary periods and deflationary periods and crises and pandemics. And these diversification properties, they actually work. And because they're based not on statistical artifacts like correlations, but they're actually based on, on understanding how these assets behave in different environments. So, so I wanted to address that first. In terms of active management, we don't implement active management in this portfolio. We're really just trying to create a balanced passive mix to risk premia. But we do think it's very complementary, which is why there's a big active component in the rest of our portfolio. And so that's a longer conversation of how do you find quality, reliable active management. But to the degree you can find it, we think it'll help you build a smoother path at the portfolio level. Let's turn to that. I mean, I guess the first question, just to clarify, in your public markets bucket, is this all the risk parity approach or are you also layering in traditional public market active management? The way to think about this is there's theory and there's practice. And you can think of it along a spectrum. On one end, there is the theory of what's most efficient and the best for investors over the long run, which we think is risk parity. On the other end, you have what everybody else does. And somewhere along that spectrum is the right spot for every client. Because the challenge with being 100% risk parity is you have to ride through the ups and downs. And that can be challenging. Even though the volatility might be less, you're always comparing yourselves to what everybody else is doing. And so risk parity relative to either all equities or 60-40 could go through a couple of years of underperformance relative. And that can be hard to live through. And that can, as humans are built to succumb to their emotional pushes, they can change course along the way. And if you do that, then you don't get the benefits of that. So our job is to find the right location along that spectrum for every client. And that's actually the most practical solution. Have you found that what that right allocation is can vary quite a bit depending on the client? Or is there a sweet spot that you've gravitated to for most of your clients? Yeah, it varies by client pretty significantly. And we actually were part psychologists, part asset allocators, because we have to look into the minds of our clients and how they will react during an adverse environment. A lot of what we do and the way we think is about how do people respond during the bad times? And the bad times aren't just the markets going down a lot. It's also relative. And I'm sure you're aware, clients 
don't want to lose money and they want to make as much as everybody else on the upside. And they flip back and forth between those two objectives. And so you can't ignore that and say, oh, that's silly. It doesn't make sense. That's reality. So every client, they react differently to downturns. They react differently to relative underperformance. And so our job is to try to understand that. And we learn from our clients over time by how they react. So we take mental notes of how they did during certain environments and maybe move left or right on that spectrum. If you define your goal as achieving the best outcome for the client, then you have to take into account their comfort level and their likely reaction in in different environments. And so a lot of people have this philosophy that I can hold through the bad periods, but in practice, very few can. And you end up with the very worst outcome if you have a client or an investor that sells at the lows and changes course. The best thing you can do is pick a strategy and stick with it. And when things are down, you add. And when things are up, you rebalance back into the other things that have done less well. If you implement that type of a disciplined approach, you're likely to get a better outcome than one in which you constantly change directions. And unfortunately, because of human nature, people have a tendency to change directions, particularly when you get very volatile outcomes. And that's another reason why we think it's important to to shrink the band of outcomes around any given portfolio. It will lead to clients being able to stay the course, no matter what that course is, versus one that's more volatile, because that will drive behavior that's probably counterproductive. It also heightens the importance of education. We spend a lot of time educating clients. We write, we speak, the meetings are mostly educational in nature, and that helps them make better decisions. So just to give a sense of the breadth, how many different client accounts, however you think about, are there in the business? Our practice, we're part of a larger group. So as a firm, we manage about $19 billion in assets. Damien and I handle about 70 clients or so that makes up about $13 billion of those assets. And the firm probably has 350 clients, 400 clients, something in that range. So let's just say of those 70 clients, just within the public markets, what's the range of, let's call it as a percentage of the public market exposure that is the most that is just in risk parity to the least or the most that has other traditional active management 60-40 type stuff alongside risk parity? Yeah, it's a very small percentage that's all risk parity. Those tend to be the most sophisticated clients. And those are really the only ones we would feel comfortable going that far because they're just asking for it and they want it and they understand it. So we feel that they can actually hold on. And what's the least? I'd say probably maybe like a quarter of it, something like that. All right. Well, let's turn to some of the other buckets. And why don't we start in the hedge fund side or however you want to refer to that bucket? What do you see as your objective in that and how do you approach it? Our objective is to find attractive, uncorrelated returns that are driven by manager skill. And within the hedge fund space, because managers have a much broader range of tools they can utilize, you're more likely to find that than in the more traditional mutual fund space, where most of the return will be driven by what happens to the market, regardless of how great of a stock picker you have. So as a result, within hedge funds, we tend to gravitate towards managers that implement their skill set in a more market neutral context, either market neutral all the time, so they have equal exposure to longs and shorts, or market neutral over time, meaning they're not biased to be long or short over time. And that's what we can rely on when determining that these are lower correlation strategies. Now, of course, the challenge is that when you take away the market tailwind, it becomes much harder to make money. So that's an ongoing challenge of identifying those managers with skill, with an institutional infrastructure that can repeat those outcomes over time. That's where a lot of qualitative analysis and many years of relationship building and evaluating managers comes into play. Where do you tend to fish for these managers? Through our network, I'd say. So by virtue of my time at Bridgewater, I know a lot of large asset allocators in the institutional world, so endowments and pension plans. And so we do a lot of sharing of ideas with those individuals. And that's how we surface a lot of managers. Also talking to the managers that we respect. They oftentimes have peers that they can recommend or managers that they themselves allocate to. In this business, I think talking to the smartest investors and getting their insights is immensely valuable because nothing is as valuable as experience. And then ultimately, this is a trust business. So especially in alpha, 
You know, if you're just hugging the benchmark within U.S. equities, it doesn't matter that much what you do. You're going to look very much like the index. But within hedge funds, if you're seeking alpha returns or, or skill-based returns, there's a very wide range of potential outcomes there. And so you have to trust the values of the organization you work with. So we specifically look for managers that are their own largest investors, that close their strategies, that are not distracted by other businesses, that are terrified of losing money. Because no matter how smart you are, this is one thing I learned from Ray among many things, but one of the biggest lasting impressions I had from my time with him is he was always very humble about his ability to predict the future. Bridgewater's success rate with any given trade in a given year was 55 to 60%. If you look at Warren Buffett, it's a probably a similar success rate. And these are the most revered investors on the planet. That's the edge you get. 55 to 60%. It's not 90%. And so you have to be humble about the reality that you're going to be wrong a lot, that you're going to be surprised a lot. I was just talking to a client today about this year. This year is something I never conceived of in so many ways. The idea of walking around and seeing everybody with masks, the differentiation this year between quantitative strategies and discretionary strategies is mind-blowing. You have really well-respected, very well-resourced organizations in the quantitative space that are down 20, 30, 40%. And then you have discretionary managers who are up 50, 60, 70, 80, 100% this year. It's wild. And I would have never envisioned that this could have ever happened. And yet it happened. And that's investing. And so those are the things that we think about when trying to source alpha and evaluate alpha. Alex, you mentioned at the top that you really try to be independent from others. And Damien's walking through this. And I can't help thinking in my head, perhaps for good reasons, but those types of criteria end up in a very similar short list. And I'll throw out the names. You don't have to. But an Elliott, a Millennium, a Citadel, a D. Shaw, Bridgewater, there's a certain subset of managers, not many, that have this kind of absolute return, low vol profile. And in one sense, you can say all the different things about what you're looking for. On the other hand, there's only a small subset of them. And I'm kind of curious how you bring those two things together and if that is indeed where you end up. Yeah, it's exactly where we end up. Because if you take the entire universe and your first screen is have a low correlation to markets, you throw out a large percentage right off the bat without even looking at the names. Then you want managers who have a long track record and that you throw out a lot because a lot of them started in 09, 2010 after they blew up their previous firm and they erased their track record. And you want managers who've held up during bear markets. So now your universe is tiny. And what's really interesting is when you sit down with these managers and you do the normal introductions, they're telling us their philosophy, we tell them our philosophy there's a significant overlap in the way we think. And I think a lot of it is what you describe as really being independent thinking and recognizing that low correlation is the, Ray Dalio calls it the holy grail of investing. You find a bunch of low correlated assets, you put them together and you just leave it alone. You buy low and you sell high and you do it over and over again. And there aren't that many people who totally grasp that concept and invest with that philosophy. And so when we find these managers, and we start talking to them about how we invest, how they invest, all of a sudden we become best friends. And we've run into some of these managers who've been close for years and we start talking to them and magically they open for us because all of a sudden we look like a desirable client to them because these are the types of clients they want. They're not going to have those same conversations of, hey, the S&P is up 20, you're up 10, what's wrong with you? So it is a small universe, and in some way, we're on a journey to find more of those investors and start working together. How many different managers do you have in that bucket? There's maybe about 10 or so right now in that range. You also talked about the efficiency of accessing, and there's one thing to have a commingled fund. It's another when a lot of these organizations are high fee and well-discovered where capacity might matter more than terms. How do you think about that within hedge funds? We always look at everything net of fees. And for taxable clients, net of fees and taxes. So in that light, if it's a three and 20 fee structure or a three and 30 fee structure, they better be delivering something that's really attractive net of that. And there are firms like among the, the ones you mentioned where the fees are exceptionally high and the returns net of fees are exceptionally attractive. So it's possible, but it just raises the bar. And let's turn to the private markets. Again, a wide swath of strategies, some, as you mentioned, Damien, some of these idiosyncratic return streams, some maybe more 
call it traditional private equity. Where have you chosen to kind of dive in? Well, there's definitely a thematic aspect to what we do. So we try to focus on things that are timely given the market environment. So earlier this year, we did a multi-manager allocation within distress credit. This was basically immediately following the dislocation. And we believe that credit with the right managers was a great way to play the recovery because at the time it was very uncertain how things were likely to proceed. And credit we thought was a downside protected way to generate attractive returns, regardless of how this played out. Because if things go poorly, you have more ways of generating an attractive return. You can take over the underlying business or own the underlying assets and sell those and still generate an attractive return. More recently, we've done a feeder into industrial real estate because we think that's a sector within the real estate space where clients are generally underallocated. And there are a lot of secular tailwinds to building e-commerce infrastructure, last mile type of facilities. If we think going forward, what we're focused on, you know, we're looking at distress within the real estate space as well. So opportunistic real estate, we're looking at earlier stage investing within equities. That's obviously not an out of favor asset class. It's very much in favor, but we think through our relationships, we can find managers with an edge, whether it's in life sciences or other verticals, we think can generate an attractive return profile. And then we are always looking for uncorrelated investments. So as I mentioned a few of them, but we sort of dig into nichier territory there. For instance, right now I'm looking at affordable housing bonds, which is a very unfollowed space, but actually has the potential to generate very attractive tax exempt yields. Or earlier this year, we did healthcare royalties. And so that's a constant focus for us. There aren't that many things that really fit into the category of perfectly uncorrelated. And you have to be careful when you go into new spaces that you really research it and you're talking to folks that you can trust, but that's an ongoing focus for us as well. How do you think about it in some of those, what you call them, alternative private strategies, so healthcare royalties, you mentioned life settlements and things like that. There's a point in time where nobody's really looking at it. And then there's another point in time a little bit later when more and more financial resources and financial market participants start participating in some of these types of strategies. How do you think about looking at a return stream like that and figuring out either you call it pricing or whether it's getting crowded? Well, I think part of it is when everybody's talking about something, we tend to shy away a little bit because that's more of a qualitative assessment of getting crowded. When they start launching you know, multi-billion dollar funds in, in a certain space, we shy away a little bit. So that's part of it. It's challenging because there aren't that many low or uncorrelated assets. So when we find one, we tend to really dig in and to this date, we haven't seen any that really are becoming too popular. Well, it's interesting. You know, I'd say reinsurance fell into the camp of becoming too popular a few years ago because you went through this 12-year period where there were, there were essentially no major hurricanes hitting the U.S. So 2005 was a very bad hurricane year. You had Katrina, Wilma, Rita, and then you went through 12 years with no hurricanes. And so everybody entered the space. And I think the smartest investors entered right after 2005, and they made a lot of money. By the time everybody caught up to that and institutions started allocating significant capital to reinsurance, I don't think they accurately understood the risk profile of what they were buying. And at the time, because there was a lot of capital coming in, premiums were getting compressed. And then you just went through a really terrible three-year stretch. And now all the capital is leaving. It's probably a good time to come back into the space. So there is an aspect of that that we'll think about. But you know, with things like reinsurance, anything that's different, you have to be careful because there's a risk there that can be very substantial. In the case of reinsurance, the losses can be equity-like and they're different and people don't, they're not as familiar with that. They're less likely to hold on. And so that's, again, back to this point of you got to figure out what clients can hold on to. But I think those types of things have a role in a diversified portfolio. Curious how you guys go about your process with the, the amount of assets you're running is very akin to a large endowment or foundation. How many people are on the investment team? So Alex and I oversee the group. We have three dedicated professionals full-time, and then we have an investment committee of maybe 10 members who have part-time research responsibilities. So it's a pretty significantly sized group and operation. How do you think about covering the world with six full-time plus a bunch of people chipping in? Well, you know, the world really shrinks when your criteria is a little bit more strict. So on the public market side, 
we're looking for sustainable long-term alpha. And for taxable investors, we think of a net of taxes. That really shrinks the universe right there. On the hedge fund side, we talked about there are few managers who are really truly low correlated. And then on the private side, you need more resources there. So actually, that's where most of our people spend most of their time. And on the private side as well, we have a whole operations team that helps with the structuring aspects. And so that is also a heavy lift because there's a lot of documentation and administration around that aspect that has to be handled. Of the 70 clients you serve, what are the different types of pools of capital? Yeah, it's pensions, endowments, foundations on the institutional side. We have some labor union funds. We're in Los Angeles, so there's a lot of entertainment type clients. And then there's a high net worth clients, our minimum is 10 million, and they go all the way up into the billions. So what have been some of the trickiest challenges you've faced on the investment side in the last couple of years? Thinking differently and trying to build these portfolios that we think are really focused on the downside, I think over the long run pays off. So most of our clients have outperformed equities over a long period of time with half the risk or so. But during the bull markets, it's the toughest. It's almost the opposite for us as it is for everybody else. We struggle during the bull markets and we thrive during the bear markets, typically. So 2008, 2009 was a great time for us because our clients held up relatively well. Everybody else took a big hit. And you look at long-term returns and you include those bear markets, you come out ahead. And then during those strong bull markets, we tend to trail until you get the next bear market and we pull ahead. So that's probably the biggest challenge. And that I can live with because I feel as fiduciaries and as trusted advisors, our primary goal is to protect our clients. And there's always the fear of missing out. That's something I can live with. I can't live with losing significant capital. And I feel like that's our biggest responsibility. So I'm always focused on controlling risk. And I guess the biggest lesson is, is sometimes it's okay to take more risk, but you can't always take risk all the time because you'll suffer those, those terrible losses. So what does the research process look like on a particular, just pick a, say, a private strategy? If we come across something that looks interesting... We'll obviously spend a lot of time with that manager, digging in, understanding the strategy. We talk to the peer group, understand what the competitive landscape looks like, make sure we understand the risks. We do reference checks. We want to make sure we're working with high quality people that we can trust. There are operational aspects that we spend time on, taxes, structuring. It's a pretty long checklist, but we have a pretty efficient way of moving through different opportunities. And then obviously those things compound from a learning perspective. So the longer you're looking at things, the more knowledgeable you are, the easier you can evaluate things. That's how it works. And basically you're underwriting a business. You're underwriting, does this have a favorable return stream? And one of the biggest questions is what can go wrong? When you talk to a manager, typically they talk about all the things that can go right and what they expect. And our job is to balance the discussion to what are all the things that can go wrong? And when we sit in front of a manager who says, we don't really see a downside, we start running the other way because that is not a recipe for long-term success. So Alex, across these three buckets, how do you generally think about allocating capital in that, in particular, if the public markets has this sort of balanced risk approach. The hedge funds clearly balance risk. And then in the privates, it can be a whole range of steady eddy and more market sensitive or economic sensitive. So where do you come out across the three? Well, they all have different liquidity profiles, different fee profiles, tax profiles. So a lot of it has to do with what the preferences of the clients, what their familiarity is with those different areas. I'd say in general, all else being equal, we tend to have more on the public side because people are just more familiar with it. It's liquid. Liquidity in an environment like this is very valuable. So giving up liquidity, you have to get something that is truly remarkable because liquidity is so important in an environment that's constantly shifting. It gives you the ability to pivot as needed. But in a world where expected returns are very low on the public side, maybe you put less there. So those are kind of the levers that we're pulling across the three. I'd say also that there is a major mispricing in markets that exist today in the sense that debt is very inexpensive. It's pretty close to zero to borrow. And private strategies utilize that to their benefit. So if you think about private real estate or private equity, there's a significant component of leverage that influences the returns. As investors look at public markets and see 
the expected returns being historically low there, private markets can be one way to supplement those returns through prudent use of leverage. How do you guys go about making decisions? Well, so we'll do the work up front. We'll kind of gauge temperatures uh, around those initial conversations, see if there's enough interest across the client base. And then we'll dig in, do our full due diligence. We'll make the recommendation at investment committee. By that point, Alex and I have fully vetted it. The research team has fully vetted it. And then the question is, what's the perspective from the broader investment committee? And uh, that might lead to another turn of doing research to make sure we've answered those questions. And then ultimately we approve it or we don't, and we put it on the platform. How often do you run something up the flagpole and then have it steered away by the committee and then you decide not to pursue it? All the time. Because you may talk in isolation to a manager. It sounds like a great opportunity. But one of the reasons why Alex and I decided to partner with our partners, so the group that we actually partnered with a couple different groups is because individually, those are great investors. And they bring a ton of experience and relationships to the table. And oftentimes they'll point out things or they'll have relationships that can point out things that we missed. And so, and our clients too are fantastic sources of ideas. So a lot of the investments that we source come directly from our clients. And so we can vet things oftentimes if it's in a particular space, like we just looked at a real estate investment that's focused on leasing properties to veterinarian clinics. And so we were able to go talk to a client who was a founder of a large veterinary business to get his perspective. And that, that type of insight is tremendously valuable. Access too is very helpful if we have some clients who are in the venture space and those funds would be otherwise inaccessible to us, but we can leverage that relationship to gain access. So we take a step back. You mentioned that you're managing 13 billion of 19 in the group. What was the progression from... Alex, and you bringing your business together and then joining it up with this sort of slightly broader group? Our goal has always been, at least for me since day one, is building better and better portfolios. When I look forward five years, I want to be smarter at investing and have better portfolios for clients. And better portfolios to us means attractive returns with less and less risk. You just want to keep reducing the risk over time by being more diversified. And so part of the reason Damien was a good fit for me is because for a long time, anytime I had an investment idea, I'd share it with my colleagues and everybody would say, great idea. I love it. And nobody would ever push back. And Damien was one of the few people who'd say, that's the worst idea I've ever heard for these three reasons. And usually two of the three are valid. So it was a really good relationship. And I felt that I was getting better by surrounding myself with him. And so I've been looking for more people like that. And David Ho, Mark Sear, are two people that we partner with that I've known since my early days at Merrill. I've known them for 15 years. And we've been sharing investment ideas for a long time. We've been talking about working together for a long time. They're tremendously successful in their own business. And they have a very strong expertise in private assets, which is an area that we wanted more help with and more hands on deck for. And so that was a very natural fit for us to partner together. And, and we merged earlier this year, our two organizations. And I think it's to the benefit of all our clients. So what do you think the business looks like five or 10 years from now? My guess is, is that it's going to be better than it is now in terms of the portfolios that we put together for clients. I think we're going to create more innovative solutions. I don't know exactly what they are yet, but looking at our history and where our focus is, I could see that trend continuing. We'll probably add a few more partners that I think can add value to our client portfolios. We never have had the goal of being the biggest. If you're too big, you can't access the best managers. If you're too small, you're not on their radar. So you want to kind of be in the sweet spot. And I feel like we're there. So it's not so much size. It's more about adding really smart people to our staff. And so I think we'll grow in terms of number of people and not necessarily in terms of the assets we manage. I'd also say that we'll continue to innovate where we think we can either access more attractive returns or structure solutions to create better portfolios, more tax efficient portfolios. That is an ongoing challenge. If you think about our landscape within our industry, there's a lot of convention allocating to active equity managers and muni bonds. That is not going to justify the fees in our industry, which are frankly too high, especially now that assets are all time highs and interest rates are near zero. 
you're almost taking the entirety of the yield you generate from the muni bonds as your fees. And so it's not sustainable to have that traditional business model anymore. You have to innovate. You have to be able to deliver attractive, differentiated returns to clients. And that needs to be attractive on a net of fees and a net of taxes basis. And so I think that's a big part of what we're trying to accomplish as well is continuing to find ways to creatively build portfolios for clients. That's great. Alex, Damien, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions before we let you go. We'll just address each of them to both of you. So uh, why don't we start with Alex? What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I love sports. I guess I'm competitive by nature. So I love playing sports and I love games. As I get older, it's less sports and more games like board games and card games. It's less dangerous to your health. So that's what I try to focus on. Damien? I like golf. I have three kids under five, so I don't play a lot of golf these days, but I really enjoy it. I also love food, eating food, cooking food, tougher in a pandemic to go out and experience new restaurants, but my wife is a fantastic cook, so I'm fortunate in that regard. And it's just a wonderful thing to share with the people that you care about. What's your most important daily habit? I guess for me, it's a little, every day I build a to-do list and my goal is for it to be shorter at the end of the day. And it's kind of sad because oftentimes your to-do list grows and you end up negative. It's longer at the end of the day. And the other thing that's part of this is I've always felt that you can only do one thing at a time. You have a thousand things going on. You narrow it to one thing and you do your best at it. And then you check it off the list and you go to the next thing. And if you keep doing that every day and you prioritize well, it's remarkable how much you can accomplish. And so I try to keep that going all the time. My most important daily habit is spending quality undistracted time with my family, because I think that's what centers me and that's what it's all for. That's usually number one on my daily list too. (laughs) Alex, what is your biggest pet peeve? For me, efficiency is so important. If I had to describe myself in one word, it would be efficient. So I think of efficiency in so many regards. And when I see things being done inefficiently, it really bugs me because I feel like there is improvement that can be made without cost. And so I always have an eye towards efficiency. Everything I look at, I just, for some reason, that's just the lens in which I view the world. Damien? Overconfidence. There are far more things we don't know than know. Especially in this industry, there's a lot of talking heads and a lot of people prognosticating. And in reality, we're mostly wrong with those guesses. And so I think it goes back to our philosophy of, build a portfolio that can be successful across a range of different outcomes and don't be too confident in any one outcome because you're most likely going to be wrong. I think skill or success in investing isn't something you can measure over short timeframes. People love to attribute success to skill. Most of your success, sorry to break it to the listeners, is probably a function of luck and some skill, but there's a lot of luck involved. So the importance, I think, of just being humble and constantly learning and constantly thinking about how to get better and evolve is an important aspect of what we do. And I think will lead to that long-term success. Damien, what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I think an open-mindedness. My family actually, probably like a lot of families in the US, they come from far off places. And my parents, they met each other in New York. My dad's French was on vacation in New York. It was a commercial airline strike. He was trying to get home. So he walked into the nearest travel agency and there was one woman on the floor that spoke French and it was my mom and they connected. And then after a four-year love affair back and forth between continents, they ended up getting married and settled in California. And I grew up with this family that had rich traditions in the Northeast and then also in France. And my mother just loved to travel. And that was something she imparted on me. And And the aspect of it that she loved was just this experiencing different ways of thinking. And I think that actually serves me well in this capacity because, again, I think a lot of success and learning comes from being open-minded to different approaches to solving various challenges. And especially now, if you think about the investments that we source on behalf of clients, I think you need to have a global perspective and you need to think about different ways that you can generate attractive returns. Alex? The way my mind works is in black and white. When I see something, I try to put it in category A or category B. And one of the lessons that, that I learned from my parents early on is 
the world doesn't always work in black and white. There's always shades of gray in between. And that's actually one of the reasons I decided to go to law school, because law school teaches you the shades of gray. So you ask a, a lawyer a question, it always starts with, it depends. It depends on this, it depends on that. There is no clear answer to your question. And recognizing that I was a black and white thinker, like a mathematical engineering type of mindset, there is black and white, just like in investing, and there's a lot of shades of gray, like investing. That was a very important lesson, and it led me to law school, and it led me to having a more balanced thinking, which has helped in the investment world. All right, Alex, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I'd say challenge the status quo. Don't assume what everybody else is doing is the way it should be. I learned that relatively early on, probably when I was in college, and I wish I would have learned it very early on. To think independently, don't don't just accept what others are doing. A lot of times it's right, but a lot of times it's wrong. And that can lead you down a very different path in terms of your discovery of, of the truth. And try to surround yourself with people who think like that. And so that introduces you to different concepts rather than just getting caught up in what everybody else is doing. Damon? When you're young, you think you know everything. And the reality is you know very little. So as I've gotten older... And as I see things that I never thought I'd see, I realize how little I know. And so I think I would talk to my younger self and say, you don't know anything, (laughs) be open-minded. I think that would serve you well to be a little bit more humble and a little bit less sure of yourself. Damien, what's your biggest investment pet peeve? A failure to appreciate the benefits of diversification. So I think most investment portfolios as we had talked about before, are full of lots of line items that actually behave very similarly and that investors would be better served by focusing on at least placing as much focus as they do on return on the diversification benefits. Alex? Yeah, it's related to what Damien said earlier, and I call it crystal ball investing, which is I think a lot of people, the way they invest is they look at something and they think this is going to give me good returns and therefore I'm going to invest in it which sounds very intuitive. But if you do that for all the line items in your portfolio and they're not diversifying versus one another, that actually results in a pretty poorly designed and inefficient portfolio. And so approaching it from a more of a diversification standpoint and being humble about your ability to predict the future, as opposed to assuming you know what the future looks like and then building a portfolio for that, I think is a a lot more sustainable design approach than the other way. Alex, what's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I'm a pretty conservative person just by nature. And I feel like in investing, being conservative pays off over the long run because it's all about surviving the trough. If you can survive the trough, you're going to make it over the long run. And you see so many investors just lose everything. But I'd say the mistake is it's also at the same time, it's important to take big risks. They're calculated risks, but it's important to take big risks. I was at Merrill Lynch for 15 years. I probably could have left five years earlier. That's a big risk to do something like that. So I'd say that's probably the biggest lesson is be conservative, but take calculated big risks when it's opportune. Damien, I imagine somewhere along the way in nine years at Bridgewater, somebody must have told you you did something wrong. So what was your biggest mistake and what'd you learn from it? I think a lot of times I don't listen enough. I think it's easy to get enamored with ideas and hearing yourself talk. I think a lot of people in our industry love to hear themselves talk. And I think you learn a lot more and you end up a lot smarter and you end up making better decisions if you listen better. So I think early on in my career at Bridgewater, I struggled with that a little bit and putting myself in the other person's shoes. And I think that's a constant challenge, I think in our personal lives and our work lives. And the more you can listen and tune into people and understand where they're coming from, I think the better relationships you'll have and the better outcomes you'll have. What's your favorite book, Damien? I like Thinking Fast and Slow from from an intellectual perspective. Alex? Yeah, I'd say either that or Ray Dalio's Principles, which I've read multiple times. I just like the way he thinks. He's the ultimate independent thinker. And this idea of always improving really appeals to me and recognizing what your flaws are accepting them and then trying to improve upon them is an idea that I just think makes a lot of sense and really appeals to me. All right. Last one. What is the best 
and worst way that a manager has reached out to you? Well, the worst way happens every day, which is just a cold call. I saw you on on TV or I read an article and what you do is exactly what we do. That happens so often that we've become numb to it. I'd say the best way is through a referral where there's a natural fit and it's genuine. And it tends to be managers who don't typically do that. They're not marketing-oriented firms. A simple measure is how many research people do you have and how many marketing people do you have? It tells you what business you're in. If you got 100 marketing people and four on research versus four and 100 the other way, it tells you what business you're in. And so that's a really important differentiator among investment managers. Damien? I'd say we are more attracted to the managers that don't market at all, that just do what they do at the highest possible level, and that we get referred to by, as I said, clients or friends or other investors that we respect. So I'm not sure there is a, certainly not a cold call that would work. I think where investment managers can spend the time to get to know us as an organization and understand our needs and what we value and can connect with us on that level, you know, that's valuable. But it's a little bit like we tend to just gravitate towards people that think like us from those values perspective, not necessarily from investment perspective, but from a values perspective. And so I'm not sure that you can do much to change your values. So I think if you operate a certain way, we're, we're more likely to invest. And if you don't, then I think if it's more of a marketing oriented approach, then it's less likely to work with us. Damien, Alex, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. We appreciate you having us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. Music